Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. It's great to be here. Happy year of New our year. Lord, 2023. Yes. And also with us is Haley Knopf. We're back. We're better than ever. Uh, well, maybe I shouldn't I make that, that promise yet. <laughs> <laughs> we are better than ever. But the thing I wanted to ask you guys right at the beginning is, What'd you get into over the break? Uh, anything legal we should talk about that was fun? Well, I think a uh, good place to start. I had a couple of cultural items, uh, matters of pop culture that I caught up on with a legal angle. And this came up in our year ahead planning meeting. We all caught up on Glass Onion uh, near the end of the year last year, which is the sequel to Knives Out. And, you know, it's a murder mystery, the Ryan Johnson murder mystery starring Daniel Craig. And Glass Onion is a, is a fun movie and most integrally for our purposes has as a key part of its backstory, a criminal IP trial, I think. Is that what's going on? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just want to say to all of our listeners, we're not going to spoil anything. You don't have to fast forward through this part of the show. Oh, I didn't know that. But, but okay, we won't, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I don't. <laughs> we won't spoil the big central mystery. I agree. But it's no small part that, yeah, a lot of it hinges on a trial over um, an important company. The other thing that I really like, which is a legal angle in Glass Onion, is that, and again, I, we won't spoil, is that the first Knives Out dealt with Benoit Blanc, who Daniel Craig plays, um, you know, is accompanying an active police investigation, and it is meant to end with an arrest. And what Glass Onion does without getting into it is that it does explore the limits of, like, independent investigation and when you can actually take legal action versus just taking cathartic revenge, I suppose. few interesting pillars there. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. That is such a good point. Yeah, Alex, that's that is well noted. I I did also laugh a lot in watching the movie because there is a central character who no secret is very much like Elon Musk and we talk about Elon on our yes. program so <laughs> often that I got an extra chuckle out of watching this movie. Well, as you guys know, I can do movie takes and TV show takes all year, frankly, and look forward to more of that uh, this year from Pro Se, frankly. But we do have a lot of interesting stories to get to, including, if you stick around later, Amber and I had a fascinating discussion with Law 360's Brian Koenig, and he broke down the very fast-moving, very interesting policy shift from the Biden administration. The FTC has put out a proposal that would effectively ban all non-compete agreements in the workplace. Brian wrote both about that proposal and some of the early stage reception to it. He did an amazing job, so I would definitely encourage everybody to stick around for that segment. Yeah, it was really fun to talk to Brian about that giant non-compete story. And, you know, for any listeners that may have a non-compete, which a lot of people do, you're going to want to hear about what's going on um, with the rulemaking around those. But before we get into all that, I'm just, I feel like I have just what is a New Year's treat. I want to talk about the Real Housewives. And for one of the first times ever, I'm not just trying to unpack on air who got the best room on a cast trip. We have a legit <laughs> legal story on our hands. Jen Shaw, who rose to fame on the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, was sentenced on Friday to six and a half years in prison for her lead in a nearly decade-long telemarketing scheme. I'm 
So very glad we're discussing this. I actually just last night watched the most recent episode of this season. And I was impressed that they like, they had her set, not her sentencing, obviously they didn't have footage of that, but they had, you know, a little informative panel where they said, Jen Shaw has been sentenced to 6.5 years. And I was like, wow, okay, Bravo's over here <laughs> editing this in at the 11th hour. <laughs> right. But but before well, we get into all of that, Jen please, Shaw died please. on the way back to her home planet. <laughs> <laughs> I do think we need to talk about who Jen Shaw is as far as her character goes on our beloved Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Thank you for asking that because sometimes I forget that not everyone on earth is as plugged into the Bravo-verse as you and I are, Haley. So for anybody that maybe recognizes the name but isn't quite sure who she is, Jen is essentially a bigger-than-life personality on the program, even by Bravo standards. And that's really saying something. She made a splash in her first year on the show by throwing an $80,000 birthday party for one of her fellow castmates. Um, She's known for traveling with a glam squad always, for having multiple assistants, and notably for repeatedly evading any question about exactly where all her money was coming from and giving sort of loose answers about what her company was and how it generated the funds for things like an $80,000 birthday party. Not to mention, she, on the show, starts fights left and right, and even this season, threw a rival's shoes off of a yacht. That scene in particular, I remember where I was, you know, when I saw it. <laughs> but, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'll just be honest. I'm going to clear out for you guys here. As I've said, I'm a fan of reality TV. I'm not in the Bravo-verse. What I do know is that a lot of these people's shoes cost a lot of money. So that's not... Sure. That's no small thing. But that does paint, I think, a pretty accurate picture of the personalities that we're dealing with here. We are talking about a story, though, that deals specifically with criminal sentencing. And I want to dig into the particulars of this telemarketing scheme. And what about that is, is expressly illegal and kind of stretches beyond just bombastic reality show star behavior. Yeah, it's not at all surprising to talk about, you know, tossing shoes off of a boat (laughs) as part of a reality show. We all know that that's reality is used loosely. It's heightened reality. There's often some pretty Mm -hmm. kooky behavior on this kind of show. I kind of wonder, this is a conversation for another time, but if they get incentives for starting fights and throwing shoes. They and get the like. invited back to be a cast member the following year. Yeah. I think that's a <laughs> well, big incentive. Yeah. But as Alex says, I mean, we are actually talking about a criminal sentencing here. So we're going well beyond just sort of catty or bad behavior that is run-of-the-mill de rigueur for a reality program. The Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office actually charged Jen Shaw in 2021, alleging she ran a nationwide telemarketing fraud that, as I said up top, had gone on for nearly 10 years. And according to prosecutors, it started in 2012. She built up a list of potential victims. Many of them were elderly and then sold that contact information to groups that were hawking a bunch of bogus products and services, often for people who were a little older and wanted to start some kind of online business. So what Jen Shaw eventually got around to doing was running her own sales floor for those kind of um, sort of bogus products. And she was convincing victims to pay millions of dollars for things like tax preparation products, business plans, marketing services, 
And none of it provided any real value to these people who were launching internet ventures. As we've seen several times on reality TV, even just in the Housewives franchise, Jen Shah then used all of that ill-gotten money to fund her extravagant lifestyle that was well-documented on television. She bought expensive clothes and cars. She paid for plastic surgery. And she rented a $7.4 million home in Utah that she dubbed the Shaw Ski Chalet. I do appreciate that she works her name into almost everything. Yeah, she even uses her name to say that everything is Shawmazing. The government doesn't think it's quite as Shawmazing, though. (laughs) (laughs) They said she continued this criminal scheme even after co-defendants were caught by prosecutors and the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, She attempted at that point, according to the feds, to conceal her involvement by taking her name off of company records and moving her business overseas. Jen also... suspicious at all. Not a bit. Sorry. (laughs) Nobody will notice the thing. So Jen was really into doubling down, too. She proclaimed her innocence up and down on social media, on the television program, and she kept doing that until the last possible minute. She spent most of her recent season on The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City repeating in each and every episode that she was innocent and the legal system would exonerate her and very forceful in those points. She even sold merch, I repeat, merch, that said things like free Jen Shaw and justice for Jen Shaw. When the government has a really strong case against you, eventually the other shoe does drop, though, And that came this summer when Jen ended up pleading guilty to one count of wire fraud just a week before her trial was actually set to begin. Well, I've never watched Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, but I might if uh, this is the kind of thing that lies in store as as we go when the sentencing comes down and all this stuff. What was the sentence that we actually got down to and when when she finally, uh, when the other shoe dropped, as you say? Yeah, so hap- first of all, happy to have given you a little bit of a teaser. Maybe we yeah, can get little, you over to the Bravo side. Yeah. What happened here in terms of the sentencing, I think is not entirely unexpected. Prosecutors had sought 10 years. Jen had argued for a much more lenient three-year sentence. Uh, what actually happened here is that they landed kind of in the middle. As I said up top, she was sentenced to six and a half years in prison. But also on top of that, um, Jen Shaw was sentenced to five years of supervised release and she also was ordered to pay some pretty hefty amounts, um, $6.6 million in restitution and another $6.5 million in a forfeiture. That also included surrendering about 30 luxury items. And this next bit I'm adding in just because it really gave me a deep chuckle. Also, she was ordered to surrender another 78 counterfeit luxury items. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, you often wonder when you watch these shows, at least I do, about, do they really own all of these Chanel handbags? Is that really a real Birkin? How can they pay for all this stuff? And in the case of Jen Shaw, it was a combination of fraud and fakes. The Birkin, as it turns out. (laughs) You can't, you know, if you're going to be professionally fighting on TV and at times over your clothing and accessories, I don't blame you for... You know, slipping down some alley in Chinatown, getting a cheaper version from some basement. <laughs> but uh, yeah, kind of uh, unfortunate for Jen that she 
got really publicly called out on all of it. She sure did. Yeah. And I mean, I do think it's funny that they're, yeah, I think it's also funny (laughs) that they're making her forfeit a bunch of the fakes. That's also. I know. How much are these fakes worth? That's what I want to know. I mean, they're good enough to pass on TV, I guess, but. Well, they have they have secondary market value because they used to belong <laughs> sure. to, to to Jen that's Shaw. That's true too. That's true. Maybe I'll buy them. Yeah. See, you, you guys are making my point here. So, <laughs> how did she? Uh, there appears to be, to have been a lot of public posturing about this case. She's she's making a the, the producers are making a story out of it on the show, and she eventually somewhat quietly pleads guilty. How did she react during the sentencing when this was going down? Yeah. So one of the things that was really fun in the coverage around this, and even our own reporting, was stuff like. She arrived in a camel pantsuit to court that day. And just this was so heavily watched. And so every move Jen made has been well documented here. And one of the big things in that sentencing hearing is that she did apologize to the victim. So she did take accountability at this late hour. I want to read one of her quotes. My actions have hurt innocent people. I am sincerely remorseful and so sorry for the agony and financial loss that each of you have endured. And I promise to repay every cent. So there you have it. That's kind of the rise and fall of Jen Shaw. She is scheduled to surrender to authorities on February 17th. And that will really put a button on what's going on with her. I will not be surprised, though, if people don't need to kind of keep an eye out. She does seem like the type that will be a phoenix that rises from the ashes when she is done with serving her time. And um, I feel like Bravo may be there at the end of all of this. Next up, the full Fifth Circuit recently weighed in on the federal government's ban on bump stocks, finding that bump stocks don't qualify as machine guns under federal law. What that means is that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives didn't have the authority to prohibit them. This is a really interesting decision for a bunch of reasons, besides this obviously being a very hot-button issue. It means there's now a circuit split when it comes to the ban. It was decided on bonk. And the decision itself was split and drew a very strongly worded dissent. There's a lot to unpack here. A fascinating decision for obvious reasons. I do recall, we've, we've talked a little bit about this in the past, and I know it's unfortunately pegged to a very a very sad mass shooting, getting very difficult to keep those things straight in our memories. So unfortunately, we're going to have to remind everyone kind of what led up to this litigation and why it's become such a hot button issue, as you say. Yeah, the government enacted this prohibition in the wake of that October 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas. And in that one, the shooter used a bump stock to rapidly fire his rifle, killing about 60 people. The ban was proposed shortly after that, but didn't take effect until 2019. So this suit was filed by a Texas firearms instructor, and he accused the government of exceeding its authority because the ban goes against, in his opinion, the plain language of the National Firearms Act. That's the law that prohibits the possession of machine guns. Before we go any further, it'd be helpful to talk a little bit more about the definition of a machine gun under that law and also what a bump stock does, because I don't know about you two, but I am a bit of a city slicker and (laughs) grew up uh, with no guns in my life, so I knew very little about this and had to do some research here. But that's really the crux of what this all centers on. 
So the law says that a machine gun is a weapon that, quote, shoots, is designated to shoot, or can be readily restored to shoot automatically more than one shot by a single function of the trigger. A bump stock uses the gun's recoil to bounce the gun in a way that means the shooter's finger repeatedly hits the trigger, but while the finger remains stationary. I hope you can process all of that. It's a lot. It's a a lot. It's a little gizmo that moves the gun against your finger. And I don't mean to like sound glib about this. I mean, but as you say, Haley, the definitions are important. The idea is that it's literally bumping the gun against your finger, but it's not you holding down the trigger. It just enables you to fire a sort of not quite, you know, automatic rifle faster than your finger could do it going back and forth, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, I'm glad we had a little lesson there on how these bump stocks work because I don't fully understand sort of the mechanics of of guns. So it is helpful to keep that in mind. We're edging toward the Fifth Circuit and we're going to get there. But how did we lead up to that circuit court? A Texas federal court initially tossed the suit and a Fifth Circuit panel then affirmed that decision in December 2021. The panel at the time held that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives had correctly interpreted the law in classifying semi-automatic rifles equipped with bump stocks as machine guns. Notably, the panel said that the Supreme Court and other courts in general have found that function and pull are used interchangeably, and that means that the Firearms Act is correctly interpreted to refer to function as a pull of the trigger and analogous motions. It's a lot of terminology here, folks, but essentially the panel said, sure, this qualifies as a machine gun. The firearms instructor in this case, his name is Michael Cargill. He then asked for the en banc hearing and the majority of the Fifth Circuit judges voted to grant that last June. So now, now we're here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not wrong to like get us in the minutia of the various terms, though. It's kind of strange. It's almost like it's almost like a patent case, like sort of like cloaked within this very high stakes gun rights issue in terms of like, what does this term mean within the functionality of the machine? We're doing a little claim construction here. Oh, yes. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's a little bit the, the, the legal sort of. Uh, architecture is different, but it's the same basic idea. What is the thing and how is it described? But let's get to the main event here. As we say, the Fifth Circuit initially says, yeah, this is definitely a machine gun. In our eyes, seems like the broader court, the entire court on Bonk had a different view. It did. The majority of judges, that was 13 of them, held that a bump stock doesn't qualify as a machine gun because In their eyes, every shot fired by a bump stock-equipped semi-automatic rifle requires a separate function of the trigger. The majority said that in defining a machine gun, Congress referred to the mechanism by which the gun's trigger causes bullets to be fired. And that means bump stocks don't qualify. Here's a good quote from that opinion. Many commentators argue that non-mechanical bump stocks contribute to firearm deaths and that the final rule is good public policy. We express no opinion on those arguments because it is not our job to determine our nation's public policy. That solemn responsibility lies with the Congress, 
And our task is confined to deciding cases and controversies, which requires us to apply the law as Congress has written it. Yeah, I mean, that really sets the tone for what they think the judicial role should be here and maybe why some of these uh, more policy-driven arguments aren't making traction, at least for this en banc panel. But you did say at the beginning that there was a pretty feisty dissent here. Um, Could you tell us more about that? Three judges dissented, and they said that a bump stock should indeed qualify as a machine gun under the law. They pointed in particular to the majority's use of the rule of lenity. So under the rule of lenity, an ambiguous law should be applied in a manner that is most favorable to the defendant, or it should be construed against the state. And what the judges are saying here is that the Supreme Court has repeatedly made clear that this rule only applies if there's a very grievous ambiguity or uncertainty in a statute, and that's simply not the case here. The judges said that in striking down the bump stock ban, the majority, quote, extends lenity, once a rule of last resort, to rewrite a vital public safety statute. A bump stock allowed that Las Vegas shooter to fire more than 1,000 rounds in 11 minutes, they noted. Um, And according to them, that means the Fifth Circuit uses lenity to legalize an instrument of mass murder. The last thing I want to mention is perhaps one of the most important things to mention about this case. This decision is just the latest in a bunch of circuit courts weighing in on this. And so far, a lot of them have actually upheld the ban. So this is a circuit split. And it seems pretty likely that this is going to make its way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think we're going to have to watch this one, Haley. Those circuit splits are so interesting, particularly on an issue that is so high profile. This may take uh, some more time, years perhaps, to really get all the way to the high court, but great to know what's going on here. And this is one to watch. The Federal Trade Commission has started 2023 with a jolt, moving to effectively ban all non-compete agreements in the workplace. The proposal drew cheers from the labor movement and threats of swift litigation from the powerful business lobby, teeing up a fierce legal and political clash in the coming months. Joining us on this week's show is Law360 senior competition reporter Brian Koenig to break down the FTC's bombshell proposal and the battles that lie ahead. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you on Pro Se, your Pro Se debut, as we hammered out off mic. Great to have you here. Be gentle with me. Yes, uh, I will try my best. Um, this is a fascinating policy development that will soon have legal implications as well. And I, we will get to the particulars of the actual proposal from the FTC in just a moment. But I think it's helpful to contextualize, you know, for the listeners the fight over non-competes and their legality uh, stretches back a long way. I want to go over a little bit of that and kind of what led the FTC to take this action. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because as you read up on everyone putting out their thoughts on this, they, they all say this goes, uh, non-competes go back hundreds of years. In present day, FTC estimates that almost one in five workers or about 30 million people are subject to some kind of non-compete. Uh, and the argument, at least uh, for the FTC and people who uh, other people who support banning non-competes is it limits worker mobility. And if you have limited mobility, you can't vie for other jobs. You can't get better and better paying jobs. You don't have the leverage to try and get better paying jobs. You're stuck in whatever job you are within whatever the geographic radius is. And if you leave that job and you want to work for a competitor, uh, whatever your employer deems to be a competitor, you're stuck for however long that period of time is. And most people don't think, well, I can just sit around and twiddle my thumbs for a year before going to work for another employer. The arguments against non-competes and, and the fight over this, it, they, a lot of it focuses on low-wage workers. The argument being, why do people like security guards out of a Michigan company that the FTC just had an enforcement action against the day before it announced this rulemaking, why does a security guard need a non-compete? What possible uh, intellectual property could be, they be taking with them if they go and work for a different security guard company at $15 an hour? Some states have already imposed their own regulations or rules uh, around non-compete. Uh, the estimate is about a dozen states have some kind of limits, usually based on sa- salary, and it's all at different levels of yeah. salary. Uh California, North Dakota, and Oklahoma have outright bans or at least um, say that non-compete provisions within those states are unenforceable. Um, and some states just have notice provisions just that you have to let workers know that these uh, exist. Um, and all of that development brings us up to uh, July of 2021 when uh, Joe, President Joe Biden signed that massive executive order with 72 different uh, competition-related and focused initiatives, one of them being calling for uh, FTC non-compete rulemaking. And that it was that was kind of a clarion call to uh, FTC Chair Lena Khan, who uh, it has been big on calling for uh, rulemaking against non-competes and just in general using the FTC's uh, rulemaking authority to go after uh, what, it, what are dubbed uh, unfair methods of competition. That perfectly lays the groundwork for my big question in this segment, which is, is this going to get rid of my non-compete? I bet a lot <laughs> of our listeners have them just like I have one and are wondering how far this rule is going to go. I mean, you mentioned that um, call from the Biden administration to do some rulemaking, but it was big and broad. It was just, hey, some about non-competes, okay? Where did the FTC land with this proposed rule? The FTC landed as basically as far as it could go. All non-competes bad. Uh, it, which in some ways for us makes it really easy because it's not just saying FTC bans some non-competes and then you get into what kinds of non-competes they Yeah, ban, we have conditions which, for, it, for salaries or positions or anything like that. Yeah. yeah, and you look at the different states. Right, because what you were saying about, you know, my job as a um, manager at Law360 is very different from the security guard you were mentioning before, for example. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So the FTC, the only exception that the current rulemaking envisions is for business owners who are selling a business or selling a, a significant stake in a business. They could be hit with non-competes and they have to have a 25% stake in the business that's being sold. That is the only exception in the current rulemaking. Uh, but the FTC, it is worth noting, the FTC, this is just a proposed, a notice of proposed rulemaking. 
So the FTC does envision potentially uh, tweaking this as we go along. This is nowhere near a finalized rule. Yeah, and, and the administrative rulemaking process is often a negotiation in itself, right? They've clearly taken a pretty strong position here in terms of just saying we are banning non-competes, you know, effectively at, you know, for all employers. And there will be some give and take through the rulemaking process, which you just alluded to. Um, you said that the sort of positions around the merits and drawbacks of non-competes have been pretty well established for decades as they've been litigated over in state courts and, and, and state legislatures and things like that. I can imagine that informed a lot of the reception to, or, or the, the response rather, to this FTC proposal. What has that reception looked like? I mean, it's been intense. Uh, I don't know that in any feature or story I've ever worked on that I've, at Law360, that I've ever gotten as much ready response from uh, PR people and lawyers <laughs> saying, I want to talk about this, or you should talk to my antitrust or my employment or my uh, corporate trade secrets person. I, I don't know that I've ever seen as much interest as I've gotten for this story. Um, and advocates are excited. They're like, and, uh, advocates are excited. They say non-competes are bad. Not non-competes are used against security guard companies. And even the FTC in the, the briefing to reporters, they pointed out, hey, reporters get hit with a lot of non-competes. And maybe we should mention Law 360 actually was hit with an enforcement action from the New York State Attorney General a number of years ago because Yes, management still has non-competes. The reporters As Amber uh, don't. helpfully illustrated, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Report, the Law 360 reporters don't. And I, but when I started eight years ago, I signed, I signed one of the thing, provisions I signed was a non-compete. I did but too. Then, but then one of our colleagues left, uh, I believe for Reuters, mm -hmm. and uh, Law 360 management sent a uh, cease and desist letter to her new employer and she ended up losing her job. And that sparked an entire... Uh, series of events that culminated, among other things, in that New York State enforcement action where Law 360 swore off the non-competes for uh, non-management employees. And people do wonder, well, what, what, is a what kind of a trade secret does a reporter have that they could use to harm their employer? Yeah, it's certainly interesting that this has touched so many industries and hits so close to home, even for our company. I don't think Law 360 is alone in having had this come up where you know, certain companies have this kind of thing happen where they have to roll back non-competes. And as you said, many states won't enforce them like California. So that's also kind of at play here. This would at the very least sort of level the playing field all around. So did you get any feedback from any uh, like employer side, company side folks who actually welcome the idea of this change? Because at least it would be simple to wipe the floor clean of these non-competes and they wouldn't have to deal with these messy, it's allowed here, but not there mm. kind of things. No, I mean, I, there's certainly supporters, but employment side lawyers that I talked to, I don't think I had a single voice saying <laughs> uh, we, we should do away entirely with non-competes. Most of their reaction is you need non-competes for certain people, if you need them for senior executives, you need them. I mean, if a person has the secret sauce to a corporation, either literal, I don't know, some, if, if someone memorized the formula for Coke, 
sure. and yep. could take it with them to Pepsi or, or, or whatever, that could conceivably be bad. Or say a sales manager who knows the detailed sales strategy for a company, even if that person is also subject to a non-disclosure agreement, the argument being you can't really NDA what's in someone's head, that you can go to a new, new employer and say, oh, by the way, I remember exactly how many salespeople we wanted to have in D.C. and in Mar- how many we wanted to have in Maryland, how many we wanted to have in New Jersey. And there's not a whole lot theoretically you could do about that. I mean, you could sue, but a lot of people said you can't really know what's happening when someone goes out the door, especially if what's happening is just happening coming from the inside of someone's brain. That's actually a really good way to explain it because I don't want us to sound in this conversation that we're all saying like non-competes are completely ludicrous and there's no purpose to them because I do think there are legitimate interests that businesses are worried about here. And I imagine they're going to sue over this rule when when it rolls out. Can you maybe, uh, based on the people you've talked to, give a little insight to what you think might be coming? I know we don't have lawsuits yet because it's so early, but I'm sure they're down the road for us. Uh, There is no question that this is going to get hit with one or more challenges. Um, The first is going to be against the FTC's authority to issue any kind of unfair methods of competition rulemaking. FTC issues a lot of consumer protection side rules, but this is pretty much their first ever use of their rulemaking under their authority for what's called unfair methods of competition under Section 5 of the FTC Act. The FTC has only ever issued one rule under that authority, and it was in 1968 for men's and boys' tailored clothing. Classic. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I I mean, when I go out and buy my suits, that definitely requires some rulemaking. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that rule was never enforced. So this rulemaking authority has never been challenged, never really been tested. And it's worth noting that the FTC's own Republican, uh, Commissioner Christine Wilson, has come out and said, we don't have this authority. Republicans are big on FTC doesn't have it. The other big challenge point is likely going to be what's called the major questions doctrine, which the U.S. Supreme Court just addressed in uh, West Virginia versus EPA, mainly being that if an agency is going to try and regulate something, it needs to have express authority from Congress if that's going to be affecting something that has huge implications for the U.S. economy. And it's hard to argue that non-competes don't have huge implications for the U.S. economy because the FTC itself is saying this is affecting something like $300 billion worth of commerce in the United States every year. And the last point of potential challenge that I heard a lot about is that you're going to see arguments about that this is traditionally a state's role. There are no federal rules on non-competes. This has been handled by states for, uh, advocates will say, hundreds of years. So you could easily say, well, this is a federalism issue. And you're going to say that most states don't have outright bans, don't have outright rules making them unenforceable, that most states have taken a more nuanced approach uh, setting various tiers. And the argument would be the FTC doesn't have the experience to just say, no, you can't do this at all. Brian, you just set my nerd heart on fire. Those are all such like sort of big issues that the Supreme Court has weighed in on. And we haven't seen the fallout really yet fully for that major questions doctrine ruling. This could be really exciting to watch play out because it can have really broad implications, not just for workers who might want to out of their non-competes, but also just about the authority of, of agencies like the FTC. 
Absolutely. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the limits of the FTC authority, especially under Lena Khan, who was elevated to the agency precisely to try and transform it, because uh, the argument is that antitrust enforcement for decades has been lax and underwhelming. Well, she came in and really wants to make use of that rulemaking authority, push the bounds of the agency's authority in ways that uh, generally have been decried by Republicans as saying this is the federal government going too far, using authority they don't have. So it very much touches on bigger issues. Yeah. And then, I mean, I, you know, all of those legal dominoes are basically yet to fall, but I would encourage everybody to check out Brian's feature on this, where you got a lot of feedback, even on just lawsuits that it, that at this time are entirely theoretical, but they will certainly come. In the near term, what are we going to be looking at as like sort of business and labor tries to get their arms around this? As we've already said, there will be a flood of public commentary on this as the agency kind of shapes it. What are you going to be looking out for as you continue to track this? I mean, a flood of comments is an understatement. Remember, this only went out for public rulemaking last week. Uh, comments are due March 10th, and already we've the FTC records over 1,400 comments received. Wow. Uh, I, when all is said and done, if the FTC breaks its records for uh, comments, I would not be surprised or at least gets up there. And we're already seeing big fights in public opinion. I already said that the FTC uh, has drawn a huge outpouring of response just from people who want to talk to reporters uh, to talk about this. Uh, Lena Khan, just days after this rulemaking came out, she penned an op-ed in the New York Times defending uh, the proposed ban and saying that it's necessary. And you're seeing lots of uh, conservative legal and other groups, uh, the Chamber of Commerce um, and others coming out swinging, saying this is bad. You're going against hundreds of years of precedent. Um, and you're also seeing lots of different statistics thrown out by proponents and advocate and uh, opponents. They all have their own studies uh, saying that this is good or bad for competition, good or bad for the economy. People uh, have in increased uh, wages and what uh, whatnot in uh, the states that have more or less restrictive uh, non-compete rules. Um, and then, of course, when it is eventually finalized and as a notice of proposed rulemaking, the FTC could always extend rulemaking. They could have multiple rounds of comments. They could come back with a rulemaking and maybe tweak it more. Then you have the lawsuits, but those are potentially years away. I had one source who estimated we, we won't see a finalized rule for two to three years. Well, Brian, if you wondered what you would be doing the rest of this year and maybe for years to come, now <laughs> we have an answer. I mean, it's always antitrust. It's just a matter of what flavor. <laughs> <laughs> That's well said. This is a huge policy shift, and you did a, an awesome job uh, breaking it down for us, both uh, on the website and now here on Pro Se. Brian Koenig, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, greatly appreciated the discussion. Thank you for having me. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Haley, I know you have one to kick off our new year. I do. The Department of Justice recently obtained a highly anticipated guilty plea. And no, I'm not talking about another real housewife. I mean, I, bummer, but okay. I know, I kind of wish I was, but you know. This one came from Filippo Bernardini, 
who admitted that he was the one behind a truly baffling scheme in which he stole more than a thousand manuscripts for forthcoming books. That, you know, it's a feat (laughs) in and of itself, but how he pulled it off is also worth highlighting. For years, this man created fake email addresses to impersonate literary agents, editors, publishing houses, scouts, even other authors. All these important real people, these were all real people that he was impersonating in the publishing industry. And he managed to steal manuscripts from some really big names, including the author Margaret Atwood and the actor and director Ethan Hawke. This scheme is fascinating. I want to get into all of it. And I also am a little perplexed about why you would even scheme around an industry that is not known to be, you know, entirely lucrative all the time. Like, well, I'm really confused about what he was doing. Even I'm glad you mentioned that, Amber. I have some friends who work in publishing and yeah, it's like sort of seen as like kind of a failing industry or whatever, or like relatively failing or at least like subjugated to a much smaller role than it had, you know, I mean, 50 years ago. Or well, apparently there are rogue agents disappearing out like a thousand manuscripts <laughs> over the course of several years that I, I feel like it might be related. I don't know. That's I'm not right, an industry, you know, you know, doing diagnostics on the publishing industry. I'll also just say as someone who read uh, Ethan Hawke's first novel, I'm not that mad that he disappeared uh, future <laughs> manuscripts. Hey, oh, uh, oh, oh, wow. So right. many digs. Haley. I do want to say that we are allowed to say things about another industry failing because we are in journalism. That's a good point. That's right. We're not failing, though. We're we fine. are thriving. Oh, doing but we're, yes. th- we're thriving. Yeah. Um. Okay, but Haley, for real, what was he even doing with the manuscripts? Was he like, you know, he steals one from Ethan Hawke. Does he go try to sell it to like a publisher or like what was happening here? That's the other thing that makes this just such a fascinating case. We have no idea. His indictment and superseding information say nothing about intent. You'd think, yeah, I don't, maybe he <laughs> wanted to sell them on the black market or like, I don't know, is it a thing to threaten to post them unless someone pays a ransom or something? Bro, people are going to see your unfinished manuscript <laughs> yeah. with all your typos and all your poor story structure and your thin <laughs> characters that the publisher has not massaged unless you make me whole here. Okay, but what if he just was a really prolific reader? Like, that, what if maybe. this is all just like, this is my I favorite really theory. love. Yeah, what if he just was like, I really love being the only guy who's read the latest Margaret Atwood. Like, what if that's his whole thing? Yeah, yeah. He he is around my same age, so maybe he got hooked on those um, Book It. Do you remember those Scholastic oh, Book It Pizza Hut challenges? He's just do out I remember there still. them? Yeah. Not only do I remember it, but I am such a deep, deep nerd in every ounce of my being that just like a year ago or something, there was some meme that included Book It that was going around the internet. And I had multiple people who knew me in junior high and high school send it to me. Oh, boy. Just being like, say a lot. You were the person (laughs) that would laugh about this the most, you nerdy, heavy reader. (laughs) Yeah, they nailed it. That's accurate. Uh, do we have more, any more? So his motive remains a mystery. We don't know. It's the perfect crime in a lot of ways, except for the part where you plead guilty to the <laughs> yeah. DOJ. 
we'll just gloss past that for now. Do we have a sense of scope? Like how, like the, the sort of the methods and how he managed to do it for such a long time? Prosecutors say he, he himself worked in the publishing industry. Classic. Inside He's, job. Yeah, exactly. He's an Italian citizen who was working in London for Simon & Schuster. And that means that he, you know, he clearly knew how to look and sound like all of the real people he was impersonating. The government says he registered 160 internet domains that were crafted to be confusingly similar to real entities. Those domains would include just a minor typographical error that would be tough to spot unless you're looking for it. And since at least 2016, he has pretended to be hundreds of real people in the industry to get his hands not only on manuscripts, I want to mention, also just on notes, on, you know, any sort of pre-publication material that might be floating around. Our, our boy was, was all over it. Which could be lucrative, like if it's from a high-profile author. But again, yeah. as we said in the prior bit here, doesn't appear, at least from charging documents or indictments, to attempt to resell, to, to resell or capitalize. It's just a, it's a mystery. His, just his personal collection, <laughs> I guess. Uh, one other thing I want to mention is he also used a phishing scheme to get access to a database maintained by a literary scouting company in New York. And I was a little impressed by this one as well. He created a web page that looked like the company's website, impersonated an employee of that company, and then got some people to go to his lookalike web page and provide their usernames and passwords, which he then used to access the database. It's it's a lot of work on top of a full-time job, you know? <laughs> so is it too meta that I now really want to write a book about the guy who was scamming and stealing all the books? Yeah, I mean, and you can get that option. I love it. That, that writes itself. Can I get it optioned? Or is someone just going to trick me into thinking it's been optioned, but mm. they're fake? Yeah, maybe. The other thing I wanted to mention, and this popped up in a lot of the secondary media about this story, the guy's name, his like notorious alias or whatever, was, I kid you not, the Spine Collector. And that yeah. refers to the theft of books, which of course, hard, like actual physical books have a spine. But when you just, when you hear somebody being indicted and they're the Spine Collector, and then you find out they're just stealing books and not selling <laughs> them and kind of have mysterious motives, that's gotta be one of the largest gulfs between <laughs> a criminal <laughs> alias and the severity of the crime. Than I, that I can recall. I hear you on that, Alex, but my take is slightly different. I feel like I was so confused. Like, why is he bothering to do all this? And as you said, Haley, it's so much work what, that he put into like this fraud. But it was all to get that sweet, sweet name. The Spine Collector. Who doesn't oh, want to be that? <laughs> it's a great name. It's a good call. I, I mean, for next week, guys, we're going to all have to think of some good criminal aliases for ourselves. I love it. Yes. Um, maybe we'll circle back Ooh, to this. Okay. But I think this is a good spot to end it this week. Really appreciate you been, being with me. Thanks a lot for the show today, Alex. Great to be back. And also, thanks, Haley, especially for the spine collector story. <laughs> Thank you. 
We have a lot of other people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Brian Koenig, and our contributing reporter, Rachel Scharf. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review that really helps other people find us. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.